Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have a great show for you today. Spring has sprung in the world of tennis, and with the Acapulco Open about to begin, we could not think of a better interviewee. Our guest grew up in a tennis family in Mexico City, and after dominating the juniors nationwide, moved to the United States and became one of the best in the world, winning Junior Wimbledon in 1985. As a pro, he rose to 51 in the world and posted wins over Brad Gilbert, Anders Yared, and Stefan Edberg, to name a few. After the great Hall of Famer Raul Ramirez, he is the best player to have come from his country and as a Davis Cup stalwart, carried the hopes and dreams of his nation onto the court with him for a record 14 years. Now a broadcaster for ESPN's tennis coverage in Mexico, Leonardo Lavalle is going to explain why the Acapulco event is fast becoming a tennis fan destination. He'll share what it was like to turn pro in the mid-80s as racket technology and fitness regimens were changing drastically. And he'll tell us about a 16-year-old Spanish phenom that he thinks is a male version of Coco Gauff. Leo joined us live via Skype from his home in Carretero, Mexico. This episode is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. <laughs> Buenos dias, amigo. How are you? Everything's good. How are you? Now, do we call you uh, Leonardo or we call you Leo? What is, uh, what is best? You can call me Leo. Leo Lavalle. Leo? Leo, Leo. Leo Lavalle uh, is the name. Leo Lavalle, yes. Now, I must tell you, Brad Gilbert uh, described you to me as a crafty lefty. He thinks you, he must, he said he played you more than a few times and that he thought that you had, uh, you had beaten him on occasion. Yeah, we, we, we had a good few matches together and uh, he probably won, won a, a in Davis Cup, and then I beat him in Hong Kong. So yeah, he was very good, good, good rival. Indeed, we do a five-set format, and our first set is what we call the off-the-court report. Okay. Now I know that you told me that you're you're going to do some work for uh, ESPN De- Desportes. Is that one of your main gigs? Well, I do a few, a few gigs with ESPN and some other networks. But no, I have my tennis academy in, uh, in, in Querétaro at a club, Campestre, which is a golf club. I have uh, around 100 kids that, I, that I'm in charge. I'm the director there. And that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. Last, last year, I traveled a little bit with Juliana Olmos. She, she's like top 100 doubles. And I was trying. To, I, I, I was helping her to try to get her ranking, her singles ranking, up. Currently, she's like 400 in singles. So I did that uh, a little bit during the summer last year. But mostly, I'm here at my tennis academy, and I'm the father of three kids. Um, so I have my hands full with the family here. Where is your academy? It's in. It's in the Distrito Federal. It's in Mexico City. No, no, it's in Querétaro. Querétaro is. Querétaro. It's, uh, it's a booming city, which is 200 kilometers from Mexico City. And it's the golf club Campesta, the country club. Campestra, yes. Campestra. 
How many courts do you guys have? We have seven courts, six, six courts, six clay courts. And, and are you active on the court uh, working with your players? I'm working with, uh, you know, the kids that play, the nationals. I have uh, 12 kids that are in the high-performance academy, and, and I work today, day-to-day. I've been, I've been doing this for a year, and before that I was in another club for five years as the director also. Now, is Mexican tennis on an uptick, or, or what's your opinion no. of where you guys are at now? No, we're not. We're doing not so good because uh, for many reasons, but I think the main reason is that our top athletes are going to other sports and tennis, it's going, it's, it's, it's very complicated to be a tennis player in Mexico because the prices are high. It's the, the tournaments are very difficult. You have to travel um, to, to play the nationals and it's not very if you're a national champion, it's not very re- rewarding because the federation is not doing a good job trying to have a nas- national program. So it's many reasons. I think that um, the, the biggest sport in Mexico is soccer, and and everybody, it's all everything: soccer, 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 soccer. And most of the top athletes, they all want to play soccer, and they want to be in other sports. Maybe baseball is very big, and basketball is very big, also. And tennis, because uh, the federation has not done a good job to promote tennis in, in Mexico. So we're in a downfall. There's less kids playing nationals. And, and so we're in a bit of a struggle in, in Mexican tennis. Man, you know, you should just you should drive straight to Nacho Berestein's boxing gym and pull 20 kids right out of there. That's my <laughs> advice to you. You go straight to the, I talk to- straight to the gym. And pull t- twenty kids out, and you grind them out like boxers. You'll have you'll have in, in ten years you'll have five five guys in the top hundred. Yeah, funny you say that because yesterday I talked to Canelo Alvarez, and that guy he's an unbelievable athlete, and he's making a hundred million dollars each time he fights. So it's difficult. Uh, boxing is also very big in Mexico. Indeed. And, and and tell me about your broadcasting. You're going to be on the ground in Acapulco. I'll be doing I'll be doing a couple matches a day, uh, so yeah, I'll be I'll be in Acapulco in in the at on site and uh, doing work for ESPN. So it's every night we're we're on from 4 p.m. till midnight. So so it's uh, long journeys. That's become an unbelievable tournament in a very short amount of time. Certainly on the men's side, I mean, I think they maybe need to rename it the Nick Kyrgios Invitational. Because I don't, I don't see, I don't, I don't see him losing a match out there. He loves it there because it's such a relaxing atmosphere, and uh, the site is right next to the beach, so the players love it. It's been voted three, four times the best tournament on tour, and uh, it's a different, it's a great tournament because we're right next to the beach, and the matches are at night, and uh, so so the the players are treated unbelievable. Raul Surutusa, the tournament director, has a lot of experience. You know, I played there many, many years. I won the doubles twice. Twice there, one with Javier Frana and one more with Jaime Onsins. But the tournament, when I used to play it, was uh, in Mexico City on a red clay. And that's where Thomas Muster won five titles 
uh, on on altitude on red clay and, and that was kind of an unbelievable record that very few people know about Thomas Muster in Mexico City winning five uh, five titles there in altitude animal in altitude that's that, that's that's that just blows blows my mind you know how how he was able to play how impactful is altitude to the to some of those problems of 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 creating elite players because i i gotta tell you i was just in in bogota and i'm a club player but playing tennis is kind of terrible because the ball flies man well yes you, you mentioned colombia they've they've been training and they have their high performance players in bogota training very hard and they've been able to produce a few top 100 players so so one time i asked uh, one of the top coaches there what what have you know what have they done right and he says well we we train uh, in altitude and if we were able to put 100 balls every day on the court when we used to go to other tournaments in in, in at sea level it was very easy. All you have to be working is on the power of your strokes. And that was taking care of arriving early on those tournaments. And it's just a myth in, in their opinion. But they are based in Bogota and they are based uh, in altitude. And they've been producing top 100 players for, for a few years. So Bogota is, a, is an example that in altitude you can produce uh, top players. And... Uh, and I kind of agree, uh, but it's you know in my opinion I would I would uh, you know why would I put my players in altitude? I would put them at sea level, and then because uh, there's just very few a few tournaments in altitude, so so I will do it the other way around. But um, no excuses. In sentence, I think in 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 Colombia they've been able to to produce top players in altitude, and that uh, that has shut down many people that did not believe it was possible. Let's move into our second set. We call this the On the Court Report. Let's start with the women. Obviously, Sophia Kennan coming through the Australian Open was a huge surprise to everyone. But she also didn't play it. She only played one seed, I think, in the whole in the whole tournament. Can you talk a little bit about what, you, what your impressions have been? Well, I think that it's great that Sophia was able to win that title, but it seems to me that after Serena's era and Venus, uh, the women have not been able to find a big player that is that that she's able to, um, you know, to to win everything. And uh, so, so you have multiple winners every week in the women's side. I I do not know uh, if that's good for t- for women's tennis. You need you need a, a big figure like a Serena, but so far it's not there. But week in and week out, there are different winners. There's a lot of parity. There's a lot of battles out there on the tour. But you think that the lack of uh, the next big star is troubling. I mean, I look like Andrescu might be the one, and, and she's obviously been battling injuries. Yeah, you, you, you see Andrescu injured. You see Barty coming through. But I don't think I mean, that's tough to say, but you need a big personality, big character, and I don't think we have seen it so far. 
and you see many many finals all over the world and, and, and all the fans are just are not there you know you see empty stadiums or half empty stadiums in finals of the WTA event and I think that's a uh, that's kind of difficult of uh, for women's tennis but I don't see a problem in grand slams the women's tennis seems to be intensely more athletic than it's been I I, I personally like to watch women's tennis. I think that, um, that it has, again, you, you need like somebody like Kyrgios in the men's side for in the women's side. I mean, you need some, something, something different, uh, a personality. Um, it's hard to explain, but yes, uh, for sure, the, the level of the women's, the women's tennis is, is not bad at all. But it, 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 it has not been able to communicate to the fans, and that's what I, that's what I'm saying. But it's it's I don't think it's, it's the woman's fault. Uh, I just think that that magic that, for example, a Steffi Graf or a Martina Navratilova or Chris Ever or some of these stars were able to 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 translate to the fans, and, and right now we're in that process to finding the next big star in women's tennis and uh but it has to happen uh winning matches it has to happen playing tennis not on the commercial side like marketing uh players and i think that's 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 wrong it, it has to come in the tennis court and that's why the women's tennis is struggling in my opinion yeah let's move over to the men um what have your impressions been so far this season well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I like, for example, a personality like Kyrgios creating a lot of buzz all over the world when he plays. Some, some do not like it. Uh, some like it, but I think it's good for tennis. And um, I really like the ATP Cup. I think it uh, it prepared the players to 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 get an unbelievable level for the Australian Open. And, and and we we saw unbelievable matches, especially at the beginning of the of the tournament. I really like that, and and um, and again, it, it's just the 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 you know the the level of the game is uh, um, still very high, and and the top players like we saw Novak, um, he he's been able to to find the right. The right way to win all these uh, to win all these championships, and 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 it's interesting to see what's going to happen with Rafa this year. If he's going to be able to win one more French Open, so it's a lot of uh, exciting things. I like Medvedev. I like the you know I like you know Dominic Thiem. I think he can beat Rafa at the French. In my opinion, that's exciting. So so there's there's a lot of depth. In the in the men's side and, and a lot of happening, which is very exciting to see. Uh, this young 16-year-old winning an ATP Tour match, I really I really enjoy that that story. That's that's interesting. You're talking about Alcaraz, correct? What do you know about this kid, man? This kid looks unbelievable. You know, he looks hungry. You know, he looks hungry. When you mention what do we need in Mexico to produce? Uh, top players. I would like to see a, a personality like Alcaraz in Mexico with with that 
with that character, with that hungriness to win matches. Um, I really like this kid, and he has an unbelievable game. For our listeners, we're talking about Carlos Alcaraz, 16-year-old, just made some head spin in Rio, plays a carbonated style of tennis. Um, what do you like about the way the kid plays X's and O's? What do you like about his style, his technique? I like his his character. I like, for example, his uh, strength. Uh, he, he's able to produce uh, winners from, from both the backhand and the forehand side, and he's strong enough to be competing with the professionals, and he's only 16-year-old. He's a little bit of, uh, like Coco Goff in the woman's side. You know, he, she's so young, and she's able to, to be on on the same speed and on the same pace as uh, the, professional, the professionals. So, so that's exciting to see, you know, when you see a, a young kid playing like that. That's, that's for me, impressive. Yeah. Also, um, you know, some of this time of the year, you get to see some other interesting, you know, players and matchups. Have you watched this kid, uh, Hugo Humbert, the French uh, lefty? I saw him a little bit. He's very natural. He's very talented. He has all this backup in the in the French tennis uh, that they've been producing so many players, and and, and I think he. He belongs to to be in the top of tennis uh, very soon. So 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 yeah. Again, these are the, the the top talents that that we're seeing, and and I really like that lefty that lefty player for sure. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Where does your tennis begin, Leo? Well, I grew up close. You know, I grew up in Mexico City, and but I left very early to the United States. I was, uh, you know, I lived three years in Florida with at, at Gary Castle Tennis Academy in Fort Lauderdale at Inverary, and then I was going to go to the to university. Hold on, will you explain that? Did you did you grow up with a tennis racket, a tennis family? How did that start? Yeah, my, my father was a very uh, decent amateur player and um, my grandfather was father of the junior club which is the oldest club in Mexico City and yes I come from a tennis background family and I uh, was national champion uh, you know in the 10s 12s 14s and then I went to the United States to uh, you know, it's a tennis academy in Florida. Now explain that. We don't know about this academy. Uh, Nicholas told me that's where he met you. A place, a guy named Kessel brought you and him and others to Coral Springs, I believe. I was in Fort Lauderdale at Inverary. Tennis at, at Inverary, that was a, a very nice club, which they have like 20 or 30 clay, uh, green clay courts. So it was a new academy. I arrived from Mexico. There was a few kids from Venezuela, a few kids from Argentina, a couple kids from the United States, and then that became a very top academy. I won, um, I, I, I won the juniors, the junior Wimbledon in '85. I finished the year number two in the world in the ITF junior world rankings, and I was going to go to USC. I had already signed to go to USC, uh, but 
I got a few wild cards in a, in a challenger in Mexico City, in San Luis Potosi, and I won that. Uh, I was only 17. And uh, then I got a few wild cards to play in Europe from IMG. Uh, and so I asked permission to coach Leach back in the days if I, if I could just uh, play those tournaments from September to December and then go to college in January. So I went to Europe. I, I, I went to Geneva and I beat the top, top 10 players from Spain, Juan Aguilera. And I, play, I lost in the quarters. And then I went to Hong Kong. I beat Brad Gilbert. I lost in the quarters. So, so I, I finished a year in top 100 in the world. So I decided to turn pro. So I didn't go to USC anymore. And that's how I started in the pros. Uh, but I was very young. I was only 18 when I turned pro. Did you improve at Kessel Academy? Did you, did you get much better there? I think that I, I improved a lot there, and and um, I had an unbelievable talent. And yes, I, I I can say that when I finished high school, I was you know one of the best juniors in the world, and I was able to compete with the professionals. But yes, I, remember in those times, finish my last year as a junior, playing with a wood racket with a Prince Woody, and that year we started playing with graphite rackets. And that was the change when everybody, or when Ivan Lendl was starting to go to the gym, that was kind of difficult to start that transition from the tennis court to the gym. And those were the days that, that it happened with Ivan Lendl leading that movement. Uh, so that was a difficult situation, in my opinion. Uh, that transition that took me a few years. I was, you know, when I finished jun my junior career, um, I was a top, you know, one of the top juniors in the world, but it was difficult because right away I was top 50 in the world, um, but without having been working on the gym that much. So, so that transition took a, a lot on me physically. I started having a few injuries, and um, so I, I, it was difficult to find the right coach that was able to to put you in the gym and to knew a little, uh, to have knowledge of, of basically what kind of work you need to be doing to be successful on the tennis court. I want to ask you, um, what was it like to win Wimbledon juniors? Uh, and I know that you won the singles and the doubles. Um, was that the moment where you thought maybe you could really be something, you know, you could really be something special in the sport? Well, when you when you when those things happen, you are just very happy because all through my life I, I really love tennis and, and, and then you have one one win like that. It was it was very very important because the year before I won the US Open juniors and then the next year that was my first year in the eighteenth and then the next year I won I, I made finals in the doubles and then I win the, the big event and then a lot of people start calling and, and all, all these important agents start calling and you suddenly you become uh, somebody important. But I, I was sticking to my plan. My original plan was to go to college because uh, all through history, I knew that all the top Mexican players have been going to college and they've been very successful. 
like Rafael Osuna, like Raul Ramirez. So I was trying to follow their footsteps. And they had unbelievable careers. Raul Ramirez was a top 10 player for many years. Uh, Rafael Osuna won the U.S. Open. So I was trying to follow that. But once you finish, you're a top 100 player. And, and that was, I was able to achieve that just in three, four months playing professional. I thought something good was going to happen. But again, I, I had never been on tour. And, you know, to be on tour, you really have to be in good shape, which I wasn't. I, I probably had an unbelievable talent to win a lot of matches. And, and, and I was able to beat top 10 players like Gilbert or Aguilera. And then uh, my second year as a professional, I, I beat Stefan Edberg in Philadelphia. Uh, he was number one in the world. So I, had, I, I was able to compete tennis-wise with anybody in the world. But basically, I was lacking at least two, three years. I was two, three years behind everybody because I, I didn't have the right uh, coaching in that aspect. So I, was, I, had, to, I had to improvise uh, and I had to live uh, and learn uh, just being on tour. So, so that was a little bit of my story. But now, 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 Leo, um, Raúl Ramirez was the world number four, by far and away, the greatest player there ever has been from Mexico. Uh, do you have a relationship with him, or did you have a relationship with him? I know, I, I know that he's getting a little bit on in age now, but uh, is he somebody that you uh, interacted with throughout your throughout your life? For sure. He helped me at the beginning very much. He invited me at the beginning of my career to practice at his house in Ensenada. I flew from... In Ensenada. I flew with Derek Rastaño, which is a very good friend of mine. Um, and, and we flew from L.A. <laughs> this is a, a very interesting story. We flew with Derek Rastaño's father, which he had an, uh, an airplane. So we flew from LA, we landed in Ensenada, and we practiced, we stayed there to practice 10 days with Raul Ramirez. He played doubles with me in a satellite in Mexico. Back in the days, we had satellites, which was uh, a bunch of four, four tournaments or five tournaments in a row. And, and at the end of the fifth tournament, you, you were able to pick up ATP points. So he played with me doubles, and he really helped me. and. He was my Davis Cup captain for many years, so so I, I I did learn a lot from him. Now he's he's he hasn't been very well health wise. He lives in Ensenada. I talk to his wife, uh, you know, a couple times a year. But yes, I, I do have a relationship with him, and um, and I and I really admired him since I was very young and until until right now. That's cool. Now, um, you mentioned Davis Cup. I mean, my man, you're the most prolific Davis Cup player there's ever been from Mexico. You played, I'm just reading this, you played 14 years. Uh, what does Davis Cup mean to you? Well, I, I was an unbelievable Davis Cup player because I, I, I struggle on tour to be always by myself. So when I was in the Davis Cup team, I was very happy and I was very appreciative of being on a team atmosphere. 
So I was always playing very good Davis Cup. And my be- my biggest wins were in Davis Cup. We beat Germany uh, in 86 when they made the finals with Boris Becker. Um, and we beat him in doubles in the in Mexico City. We It was the first time we built an unbelievable 10,000-seat uh, stadium to at the German club to, to play Germany. And we beat them in the... Uh, in the Monday because it got dark on Sunday, three all in the in the fifth set against Mike Michael Westphal. Michael Westphal. Robert. So we were able to beat Germany, and then and then um, we beat Spain in in Davis Cup in the World Group. We beat Argentina in the World Group. We beat Russia in the World Group. We beat. Um, Great Great Britain in the in 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 the in the World Group. So we were able to. While I was playing, we were three four years in the World Group, and and um, it was a very special time for Mexico to be in the World Group in those times. And I was and I was always playing very well, very good tennis for my country. It sounds like you love Davis Cup. Oh yeah. What was it like carrying the hopes of a nation? For so many years, um, I, I understand that you had huge expectation as the the new face of tennis in Mexico throughout your career. Uh, what was what was it like to carry that that kind of expectation? I, I kind of look at it like it was it was something something good to have. I, I enjoyed the the responsibility that I had to to be able to beat all these top nations playing Davis Cup and, and, and I knew I was good at it so I enjoyed it like I said I was to be a tennis player such a lonely lonely time maybe not now because like you say you, you were able to have now you're able to have lots of people around you but when I used to travel I, I only had maybe one people with me and sometimes I was traveling alone so I, 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 I really appreciate it and I really enjoyed to be able to play for big crowds, which we had in the world group playing in Mexico. And I, and I, and I, and I embrace it. And now I am, you know, when people stop me and they want to take pictures and, and I haven't been playing tennis for 20, 30 years, I, I really appreciate that. That, that. That's something that will stay for me forever. The love of the people and the and the and the people that recognize that uh, now and then. So so that's why I'm very grateful. I was able to live to live those kind of experiences in, in when I played. Listen, let's move into our fourth set. We call this the ten ball scramble. Uh, I say something, and you just tell me what comes into your mind. We do not do a deep dive. You ready? Go ahead. Favorite tournament? Uh, Wimbledon. Your favorite court? I would say center court, Wimbledon. Favorite city? Paris. Where do you keep your trophies? Uh, in my cabinet. The important ones in my, cab- in my, in my, in my living room. And um, how many rackets do you have at your house? Uh, I would say... 10, 10, 12 rackets. Any special, any special uh, moment, memento rackets you have there? I keep uh, Prince Woody, which that's the one I, I won uh, Junior Wimbledon with. 
that's that was that's that was a special racket for me. Prince Woody, big entourage, lean and mean. You need a big team in your corner to be able to to be on top of the game. That's 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 what's changed. Before we were traveling by by ourselves, maybe with a coach, maybe with with a friend, but those were different different times. You know, uh, I think that it's it, there's so much money now. It's such a big business that big entourage. Let me ask you, um, on-court coaching. I like it. I, I personally like it. I just to find the right way because at the end of the of the conversation, I think that the player has to be making uh, the good decisions. But I think that uh, there's a space where maybe once in each set you can come in the court like the women are doing, and. Um, and yeah, I would like to see because they're doing it anyways, you know. Yeah, Davis Cup. Well, we need to change it. I mean, for me, uh, to have to have the home and away ties was so important in Davis Cup, and that's what made it so so special. So there's gotta be a a change, in my opinion. Favorite forehand? <sighs> oh, I, I I love curious. He can hit the ball unbelievable hard. Was there anybody in history whose forehand you loved? Gonzalez's forehand was unbelievable also back in the day. Fernando Gonzalez. Fernando Gonzalez's forehand was unbelievable. He was on. Favorite backhand? There's nothing like a feather or backhand. In a one-handed backhand, I think that's, that's, that's the best right now, I think. Um... Novak's backhand is unbelievable to have the backhand. Favorite serve? I think the most consistent serve, in my opinion, is, is, is Novak. Nobody gives him um, the credit, but he to be able to win like he, he's winning, he's got to have an unbelievable serve. And nobody takes, um, nobody gives, a, gives credit to that serve, in my nope. opinion. That's very interesting. Um... People seem to think that his serve isn't very, isn't really as good as others. Um, do you disagree? Yes, if you see the stats when when he's winning all these titles, his serve his serve percentage is, is unbelievable high. He's over sixty percent or sixty five percent on first serves, and um, nobody gives him that much credit and and and. And I and I and I follow the stats, and I think that's an unbelievable stat. Uh, and, and and once in in the early rounds, when he has these high stats on his serve, uh, he's he's very dangerous. He he probably has a shot at winning any title, especially if he has these stats at the beginning of tournaments. Well, Novak is just a machine. A favorite volleys. You know, Stefan Edberg was had unbelievable volleys. And uh, Boris Becker, he was able to go into the net unbelievable. She was able to, to volley unbelievable. Obviously, McEnroe uh, and Sampras. Now, uh, let's move into our fifth and final set. We call this the king of the court. What is your opinion of the political situation in the United States uh, with this administration and and, and 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 some of the rhetoric and things that have happened over these past few years. Oh, well, I mean, I think that uh, United States it's it's 
it's a big it's bigger than that. I think that the United States what made what makes the United States big is that we have all different kinds of people uh, from different countries that that uh, that embrace it. And, and, and I'm very grateful. In my, you know, I, I lived in the United States more than I've been living in Mexico, and, and I have nothing for nothing bad to say. Only that that all the people that I've been, uh, you know, that I've met and that I know from the United States, that they are all very friendly and they understand where where the roots are coming. So I think it's just uh, it's just politics you know there of, of course there's there's a lot of people that have been hurt and that they have been struggling and, and trying to to make a better living but i think that the united states at the end of the road it's it's a land of opportunity and and and, and they've been embracing immigrants from all over all over the world since i can remember and, and that's what the united states that's what makes the united states so big so great no doubt listen uh, Nicholas told me that you would uh, you would wax poetic and that you would be a very cool guy to talk with and and uh, you certainly did not disappoint. Um, this was a pleasure. Thank you for the time and uh, have a great couple weeks in Acapulco. For sure, I appreciate um, the 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 time and. Uh, um, I'm happy to talk to you anytime you need. And it was a good memories to talk. Hey, man, uh, I hope our paths cross uh, down the road and we'll do this in person next time. Uh, Leonardo Lavalle, muchos gracias, and you are released. Thank you, man. Thank you. Take care. Good luck. Huge thank you to Leo Lavalle. Huge thank you to the Sparrow Cafe at the Malibu Racquet Club, which is by far and away the best-kept secret in California. They are open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It is all awesome, and it is open to the public. See it at SparrowCafeMalibu.com. And when you go, tell them that we sent you. I'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. Now, if you've been thinking about becoming a patron of the show, now is the time. We have just posted some new members-only premium content. Head on over to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash underreviewtennis. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. And to catch some clips from some of our interviews, check out our YouTube page. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti, and Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.